This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good morning, everybody. Thank you all for coming. Uh, <clears throat> it's my great honor uh, to introduce Professor Ko uh, from the Yale Law School. Uh, and uh, first of all, I would like to thank uh, Professor Moore, uh, Ms. DeVoy, uh, for helping us organize this visit. Uh, this visit comes to us because of the uh, Visiting Scholar Program uh, of the Phi Beta Kappa Society. Uh, I'm John Park. I'm president of the Phi Beta Kappa chapter here. I'm also a professor of Asian American Studies. Uh, I've been here since about 2002. <clears throat> and uh, even when I was in graduate school, uh, Professor Ko was uh, becoming a leading significant figure uh, in American um, legal culture. Uh, he has uh, a distinguished res- I mean, we can spend you know, half an hour just talking about uh, his accomplishments. He has had the distinction of serving in three different administrations, uh, in the Reagan administration, in the Office of Legal Counsel, uh, in the Clinton administration as Assistant Secretary of State, and then most recently as a legal advisor, uh, also in the State Department, uh, under Secretary Clinton in the Obama administration. Yeah, he has extensive experience uh, as, a, <clears throat> as a litigator, uh, as a clerk on the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, as a scholar. Uh, he writes faster than most of us can read. <laughs> He's published at least uh, 200 separate pieces uh, and uh, several books. And the most recent work uh, is about the Trump administration and international law. The CAP Center this evening uh, will host a larger talk uh, at 7 p.m. Uh, at Corwin Pavilion about the Trump administration and international law. Uh, Professor Koh has graciously agreed to give this smaller uh, talk uh, about the Trump administration and North Korea. Okay, so thank you all for coming. Uh, please join me in welcoming Professor Koh. <laughs> well, thank you, uh, Professor Park. I want to thank Professor Moore and Maeve DeVoy and uh, the CAP Center for inviting me here. Um, as you can tell, I'm a Korean-American, um, and this is what sparks my interest in North Korea. Maybe I should just ask, how many, how many Korean-Americans are here? And how many people have been to Korea? How many have eaten Korean food? <laughs> All right, a great number. So this, will, uh, uh, this, this uh, uh, talk this morning will sort of combine the personal and the professional, building off of the introduction that uh, Professor Park just gave. Um, so I'm uh, from Connecticut. Uh, I was born in Boston. But both of my parents were from Korea as immigrants. Um, as you may know, most of the immigration to the United States from Korea came in the 60s after the Normalization Act. And most of it was to the West Coast. But um, uh, my family came to the East Coast. Uh, my father was from a small island off the south coast of Korea called Jeju Island, um, which uh, you know, during the uh, World War II, half of the island was closer to Japan and only got radio signals from Japan because there's a volcanic mountain in the middle. Uh, and the other half was pointed toward um, uh, Korea, and so they have a sort of unusual dialect. Uh, my father was the first guy from his island ever to study law in Seoul. 
And so for him to come to America was an astonishing jump. Uh, and he came alone in 1949 to San Francisco uh, and then made his way to the East Coast where he went to Harvard Law School. Uh, I think he was also the first uh, Korean to go to Harvard Law School. Um, my mother, uh, who is still alive, my dad passed away about uh, 25 years ago, um, was actually from quite a wealthy family in uh, Seoul, one of the wealthiest families. Uh, and she won a scholarship to go to Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which is in western Pennsylvania. And she came over in 1948, a year before my dad, as uh, a freshman. Um, and as you know, this was just about the time the Korean War broke out. Now, one story that I only learned later in my life was that when the country was divided, um, toward the end of World War II, um, the uh, Americans were accepting the surrender of the Japanese from the South. Uh, the Communist Chinese were uh, accepting the surrender from the North, and they converged on the 38th parallel. And Dean Rusk, who later became Secretary of State, but was then Assistant Secretary for East Asian Affairs, uh, pulled down a map and decided the country would be divided at the 38th parallel. Um, this was an entirely arbitrary decision with which we've lived ever since. Um, one reason is that because the North was the industrial part of Korea, uh, at the time you know, probably better off than the South, the South was the agrarian part. So each half had to, half had to uh, sort of replicate itself. And it turned out that on the day that they divided the country, my mother was uh, a teenager in the North. Um, the reason was that my grandparents, her parents, had a summer home um, about 30 miles north of Seoul in the northern area. And uh, they were lucky because uh, they had a telephone when there were very few telephones. And they got a call, she and her brothers, two brothers, saying, they're dividing the country, get out, <coughs> try to get to this border crossing, we'll try to get somebody there to pick you up. Um, and then the phone went dead. So my mother's uh, 16 years old at the time. She leads her younger brothers on a cross-country trek, and they ended up at the border. Uh, at the location, it, it was all chaos. People were fleeing across. Nobody knew what was going on. Nobody was there. And she thought, what am I gonna do? Uh, it's too far to hike to Seoul. And then suddenly this car appeared. Turned out my grandfather had sent a car, had been waiting, and the guy came back and it took her to Seoul, and she went on. I say that because under other circumstances, she could have spent the rest of her life in North Korea and uh, who knows what happened to me. Um, some version of me might have been born also in North Korea, which is a relevant part of this story. Um, my father then decided he would become uh, a lawyer. Uh, and he was very interested in reunifying Korea. You know, once your country is divided, he was a political scientist. Uh, he, was, he was determined that Korea be reunited. <laughs> hey, oh, great. <laughs> oh, I should do it to you. <laughs> How much do I owe you? Uh, oh, boy. This could make the difference. <laughs> um, 
So um, in law school, uh, my father uh, got to know uh, the man who is the South Korean ambassador to the United States. And um, my father was a famous student and extremely popular in the southern part of Korea, particularly on his island. And suddenly, the government that preceded my father's, the, the first democratic government, was overthrown, the government of Syngman Rhee. And so they uh, had an election. And my father got a call from his friend, the ambassador, John Chong, who said, I'm going to run for prime minister. Would you help me by campaigning? And so my father very much wanted to go home for the first time and campaign uh, in the South for his friend to be elected the first democratic prime minister of Korea. Um, and um, he didn't have any money, uh, but he was, uh, you know, he's a poor student. He had six children. I was the fourth. But he had just become a Christian. He had joined the church that's at Harvard Law School. It's a Methodist church. So he went and talked to the minister, and the minister said to him, uh, next Sunday, which is only two days away, when I give you the signal, you and your family get up and walk out of the church. Um, so my father wasn't sure what this was about. We're sitting, you know, if, if this is the church, the uh, eight of us, the six children and the two parents are sitting, and suddenly the minister gives a gesture, and we got up and we walked out, right, right down the middle of the aisle, very um, uh, visible. And then about 10 minutes later, the minister came out and gave my father a hat. And in the hat was $3,000. And he had said, this young man is a patriot. He wants to serve his country. We're going to pass the hat until we get enough for him to go. This is one reason why my father loved America, and, and so do I. Uh, you don't see that kind of generosity in many places. So my father went back. They won the election, and amazingly, he was made uh, ambassador from uh, Korea to the United States. And so we moved to Washington, D.C., and I was just a little boy. And because of my father's contacts with uh, other people at Harvard, he was made the point person to uh, the White House, where most of the fellow students of his were working at the National Security Council. And this was just after John Kennedy was elected. So first Democratic government in Korea uh, addressing the Kennedy administration, incredibly exciting time. You know, my father loved it. And then one day, uh, they, somebody calls him in and says, uh, we've just heard, the Central Intelligence Agency has just heard there will be a military coup in Korea. You better get back and warn them. So my father went to the airport, flew home to Seoul, they convened a cabinet meeting with his friend, the prime minister. My father said, I, you know, we have credible reports that there's going to be a coup d'etat. And um, the prime minister said, oh, oh no, there won't. Um, this man here 
will prevent it from happening, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. His name was Pak Chung-hee. Anyway, he did the coup d'etat. And by the time that my father got back home, the government was overthrown. Park was, had appointed himself president. And, um, uh, and then served as president until he was himself assassinated. And that night at the Korean embassy in Washington, my father convened a meeting of the staff and he said, uh, we believe in democracy. Um, I propose that we all take an oath that none of us will ever serve a military government. There was a room like this. There were about 50 people there. Everybody took the oath and they passed around a piece of paper and everybody signed it. And of those people, every single person in the room, except for my father, broke the oath and went and served the military government. Um, and that tells you something. A lot of people have absolutely no commitment to principle. We see this in Washington every day um, in, in a graphic, pathetic way that people who claim to stand for something actually stand for nothing other than proximity to power. So I learned this at a very early age. And I asked my father once, uh, do you feel bad? You know, the, the guys who broke the promise and went and served um, the military government, they all became ambassadors, they became the foreign minister, some of them became prime minister. And he said, so what? You, you can always find people to take these jobs who are prepared to sacrifice their principles to do so. They're nothing. He said, it doesn't matter what position you hold. It matters what you believe and what you do. He said, if you, what you believe and what you do stays constant and true, you'll be remembered. And they won't remember the names of all these other people. Now, in the middle of all of this incredible turmoil, we suddenly hear that the friend of my father, the now deposed prime minister, is going to be executed by the military government. And so my father goes to the White House and meets with the national security advisor at the time, a man named Walt Rostow, who was the a professor of economics, a famous professor of economics. And my father starts talking to him about how uh, Prime Minister Chang is a Democrat, I mean, small-D Democrat, who tried to bring democracy to his people. And Rostow says, we know where he is. He will not be harmed. And my father was just stunned. You know, America... This is the power of America. They can reach across the ocean and say that this guy won't be harmed. Now, he was released. He was held under house arrest. He was severely beaten, um, tortured. But they didn't kill him. And as that call is, as that meeting is ending, um, suddenly Walt Rostow turns back to my father and goes, well, what are you going to do now? <laughs> my father said, uh, I'm unemployed, and I'm exiled, and I have six children. And so Rostow says, you know, my, my brother is dean of Yale Law School, 
in New Haven, Connecticut. Do you want me to call him? <laughs> so he got nothing to lose. So according to my father, they're in the same room. Rostar goes to his phone, makes a very quick call. He can't hear what he says. It lasts 30 seconds, and he hangs up. To which my father concludes, nothing important could have been transacted in a call of this length. So he's getting ready to leave, and then suddenly Rostow says to him, don't you want to hear about the conversation I just had with my brother? And my father said, I, I'm, thank you for making the call. I'm sorry it didn't work out. He said, no. He said, can he get here in a week? So a week later, we all got on a train. We moved to New Haven. Forty years later, I was dean of Yale Law School. Now, that also doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. Now, all this is a prelude to a discussion about North Korea. Um, as you can imagine, uh, I was fascinated by Korea and North Korea my whole life. But I started out as a physics major. Um, I, I did physics in high school. Um, I was an excellent student in physics at a very bad high school. <laughs> so I thought that I was very talented in physics. In fact, I wasn't. <laughs> but then when I got to college, suddenly I was with people who actually knew something about physics. <laughs> and that was a bad situation. Because, you know, you're Asian, so people think you know what you're talking about. And if you actually speak up and reveal that you don't know, then you're cursed. So as the year went by, I just sat there getting more and more confused and mystified and afraid to speak. And one day, the professor does an equation that starts over here, and he goes all the way around here, and then he ends up over here. I couldn't follow a thing. And then another kid points out that he has made a mistake. <laughs> I, I got to get out of this. <laughs> what am I doing here? Uh, the next day was the last day. I, I was a junior in college, majoring in physics. And I had just decided that this was a big mistake. And um, I was uh, walking uh, on the campus. I was thinking about this uh, just now. And this big, tall, blonde surfer guy, who's from California, comes by and he says, um, I said, where are you going? He said, I'm taking a class on East Asian history. It's great. <laughs> and I said, this is my favorite class. And he starts walking away. And I'm meanwhile heading to my lab where I will be underground for the next five hours. And I thought, why is he taking the class on Asian history and I'm going into this dungeon? So I turned around and I ran after him and I went and I sat at the lecturer and I thought, this is what I should be doing. And so that day, which was the last day to shift my, uh, switch my major, I switched my major to political science. And with the thought of going to law school. Now, why did I do this? You might well ask, why did I major in science in the first place? You know, my father encouraged me to major in science because I think he thought that if you did some course of study that required you to speak English, you'd be discriminated against. 
but if you did numbers, the numbers don't lie. He didn't realize, I think maybe, or he realized, but maybe he didn't understand so viscerally that, you know, English is my native language. More than that, I decided that if I was going to be an Asian American, that was a defining feature of my identity. As a scientist, it didn't matter that I was Asian American. But if I became a lawyer or a professor or a diplomat, then my job would be negotiating between cultures. And then suddenly what I thought was the distinctive feature about me might actually be a great asset. And in fact, you know, my father was a lawyer and a diplomat and a professor. And when I told him I switched, you know, he was the one who was encouraging me to do science. He said, just like your father. And he was actually secretly extremely pleased that I made this choice and was till the day he died. So, um, one of the very first things that happened was I took a class where a guy was talking about diplomacy, which I knew nothing about. And he started talking about some people like Henry Kissinger and John Kenneth Galbraith and Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And he said, these people are scholar diplomats. And I said, what are scholar diplomats? And he said, well, they're people who are professors, so they have tenure, and so they have a permanent job, but they go in and out of the government. And so from the government, they learn about the real world, and from academia, they learn about big theories. And so I thought, that's a really interesting. In fact, I thought my father's a scholar diplomat. So they say, you want to write a paper on something? You know, I just switched from physics. I said, how about scholar diplomats? <laughs> they said, okay, what are you going to do? I'm going to interview some scholar diplomats. So I went around the campus and interviewed some people and learned some things about this. And I decided, you know, I'd like to be a scholar diplomat. And in fact, that has set the direction that I've been on ever since. So as John said, um, I've, been in, I've been teaching law since uh, 1981. So 37 years, but I've been in the government in that time 10, 10 years in three different administrations in the Justice Department and in the State Department. Uh, okay, on to North Korea. So remember that in the time I was growing up, both South and North Korea were authoritarian societies. South Korea was run by a military dictatorship uh, led by Park Chung-hee. North Korea was run by Kim Il-sung. And um, North Korea is a closed society. I mean, almost nobody has been there. Uh, my first trip, I've been to North Korea three times. The first time was for one minute, which was when I was a high school student, I went to Seoul, and it turned out you could take a bus to the demilitarized zone, and you go, go into the demilitarized zone, and at Panmunjom, where they do the negotiations, there's a table, and the middle of the table is the dividing line between the south and the north. But in that room, if you come in from the south side, you can walk around the table, and for a brief second, you're in North Korea. 
So I did it. <laughs> you know, I was 15 years old. I was pretty excited about this. I think I was the only person I knew who had been to North Korea. Even my father hadn't been to North Korea. Of course, my mother had been to North Korea, but not in that situation. When I was in college, now from my senior paper, I was now writing about the relationship between Korea, Japan, and the United States diplomatic relations. This is after I wrote the paper about scholar diplomats. And I went to uh, Korea to do some research. Um, and during that summer that I was living in Seoul as a junior in college, I decided I'd go back up to the DMZ and really take a look around. And um, the DMZ, so if this is the 38th parallel, Seoul is here, just south. Pyongyang is up here, but right here is the Joint Security Area, the JSA. It's a circle, and um, half is owned by the north and half is owned by the south. And um, it's a hall of mirrors in there. So, for example, each country has the same amount of footprint space for their buildings. But if you're in the south, the buildings, the southern part of the Joint Security Area, the buildings are very small, and, and they're kind of military huts and things like that. But looking at the North Korean buildings, they're huge. And it turned out that they're all facades, like in, in a movie stage. <laughs> like they're huge fronts to impress the um, South Koreans with how powerful and wealthy uh, the North Koreans are. Now, the Americans and the South Koreans respond by having a requirement that all of the military police who serve on the southern side all be at least six foot five. So in the southern part, these gigantic guys are walking around. I mean, huge Koreans and huge Americans <laughs> are walking around. So all the North Koreans think the Americans are all huge. And then in the middle of the whole thing is this weird telescope uh, where you can look up to a little town. There's a little town up here in North Korea which is called, um, the, the, the North Koreans call it Freedom Village, and the South Koreans call it Propaganda Village. And it's this village that's populated by North Koreans. And um, if you're looking through the telescope, which I did on the second trip, you can see people moving around, and there are uh, fires going in the chimneys and stuff like that, and people are driving cars. And I said, gee, that looks like a lot of activity. He said, that's five people. Every morning they bring in five people, and their job is to drive cars around aimlessly and <laughs> start fires in the chimneys and create the illusion of activity to create the sense that there's this freedom village when actually it's a propaganda village. And it turns out, and this is a great tragedy, that whole zone, the strip across is the most heavily landmined land in the world, based on the theory that um, if the North Koreans try to invade the South, they'll send hordes of North Koreans across overland. So they have to be blown up by these landmines. And 
over the years, they've just littered this place with landmines. There is one road, highway, that runs from Seoul to the Joint Security Area, and then it runs from the Joint Security Area north to Pyongyang. And when we're on that road, it's strange, because it's a big superhighway, and there's nothing around it. All of the villages that used to be there are gone. And as they're building the road into Seoul, they suddenly realize we're building the greatest tank attack route into Seoul. So every five miles or so, there's a bridge to nowhere. But if they pull back, they can dynamite the bridge, or there's a bridge into a valley, or you can dynamite that. On the theory that if the northern soldiers come over and the South Koreans start to retreat, they just destroy this road that they've created. So that was quite an amazing revelation. Now, <coughs> um, the most memorable experience I had as a college student was not in North Korea that summer. It was in the South. Uh, just as I was about to go home, um, Park chung the president's wife, is assassinated in an assassination attempt directed at him. He was later assassinated in the successful assassination attempt. Um, and suddenly they declared martial law. And they said that uh, you couldn't walk out on the street after dark. And literally in the streets of Seoul, Seoul is now bigger than New York City, where these big army tanks and all these soldiers every, on every single street corner. Now that summer, to date me, was the same summer that Richard Nixon resigned as president. And on the day that Richard Nixon resigned is the day they declared martial law in South Korea. And I called my father and I said, I can't leave until they lift this martial law. And I said, Dad, what, what am I to make of this fact that this country, Korea, has never had a peaceful transition of power. And it's had dynasties, it's had military coups. And the United States of America, the most powerful nation in the world, just changed its leader. And there are no tanks in the streets. And everything I see here are tanks in the streets. And he said, that's what we call the rule of law. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, in the United States, if you're a president, the troops obey you. In Korea, if the troops obey you, they call you president. That's the difference between the rule of law and the rule of individuals. And he goes, don't forget that. And that was when I decided I'm going to go to law school because I wanted to know more about this uh, rule of law. Okay, so now roll the clock forward. And it's um, 1998. Uh, I, I go into the Clinton administration as Assistant Secretary of, of Human Rights under Madeleine Albright. And we, we became good friends. We're still very good friends. And... In about October of 2000, just before the end of the administration, 
they decide that we should make a trip to North Korea to see whether they'd be interested in having a direct talk with the Secretary of State, perhaps in anticipation of a talk by a, a meeting between Kim Jong-il, Kim Il-sung's son, and Bill Clinton. So um, the first step of this is that this chief of staff of the North Korean uh, army, Jo Myung-nook, comes to America and we meet with him. And then 10 of us are picked to go to Pyongyang for a five-day visit, the highest uh, level visit ever held by um, a US uh, delegation un until recently. Now, it was an extraordinary experience. There are many, many incredible aspects of it, and I could talk about it for days. But among other things, uh, we, we didn't have an embassy in Pyongyang. Um, so what they did was they, they actually sent a big moving truck with Xerox machines and uh, telecommunications equipment uh, over the border, and it was escorted by North Korean soldiers all the way up to Pyongyang. And then they were given a government guest house, which I think was heavily bugged, and they went through and found most of the bugs. And then they set up our stuff there. <laughs> when we set up in these places, you know, we have, um, it, it looks like a tent. Inside a room, it looks like a, a silver tent of the kind that you see astronauts using, which is supposed to block out people who are trying to hack into your signals. Uh, in Pyongyang itself, we're in one of the weirdest buildings you can imagine, which is a, a semi-completed two-tower hotel. And we're in the hotel on the one side. And we had a very feisty young woman on our delegation. And every day that we go into the lobby of the hotel, we can go up our side, and then there's the other side. And she's about this tall. And she says, I'm going to go up to the other side. I want to see what's going on up there. And we said, oh, be careful. <laughs> she goes, what are they going to do with me? So she just goes and gets on the wrong elevator and goes up the wrong tower. So a couple of us, her friends, are sort of waiting down below. And she comes out with about five guards, and they sort of shove her back and start screaming at her in Korean. And we get up on our side, and we said, what'd you see? She said, you know, I got off on the same floor as I'm on in the other tower. And you walk down, and every room is eavesdropping and wiretapping and televising what's going on in the counterpart room on the other side. So your room, the room that you're in, is full of cameras. and So don't do anything in the room you don't want <laughs> reported to the, you know, to the Korean intelligence. So that was a nice wake-up call. On our first day in Pyongyang, so we land in Pyongyang, at night, and it is totally dark. Just before we get to the airport, this is the capital city. This little string of lights goes on. And the reason is they have no electricity. You know, they're so impoverished. And this one runway opens up and we land. And we get out of the cars, we get out and there are these cars. They're, 
there are 26 burgundy Mercedes-Benz. And it turns out that um, Kim Jong-il is a big fan of burgundy Mercedes-Benz. And he's bought all these burgundy Mercedes-Benz. So we get into our cars, etc. Um, now, the first day, they suddenly announce, okay, uh, we're all going on an expedition in Pyongyang. Each of us has our own car, Mercedes, uh, Burgundy Mercedes-Benz with a North Korean driver. And we're driving in this caravan through the streets of North Korea, of Pyongyang, and these <laughs> traffic maids wearing these elaborate uniforms are going like this. Like, stop this. Except there's no traffic. They're just like, they're like going like this. It was crazy. Why is there no traffic? There's no gasoline. The only cars on the road were Kim Jong-il's cars. And we pull up at this huge monument. It, it, looks, it, it looks exactly like the Lincoln Memorial, except the Lincoln Memorial is white. And this is like charcoal gray, a weird color. And we walk up the front of these steps and, you know, what is this place? And we come into a very big um, marble hall. And down at the end, we see this kind of inner room that has this weird red light color in it. So we walk down there, and we're going, what is this place? And as we enter this red room, this music starts playing. And suddenly this light goes on. And there, floating in a glass box, is the embalmed dead body of Kim Il-sung. And all the North Koreans are just like incredibly reverential. And the people I'm with are going, this is pretty weird. <laughs> these, guys are, these guys are brainwashed. Now that night, because I was so jet-lagged, um, I'm sleeping. And by the way, when I was a kid, I had a recurring dream that I was trapped in North Korea. Why? Because my mother was almost trapped in North Korea. And I'm having this dream. And I wake up, and I'm in North Korea. <laughs> and I hear all these cars outside leaving. And I run and look, and the other burgundy Mercedes-Benz are all leaving. So I jump up, and I get dressed, and I run down, and only one Mercedes-Benz is left, mine. So I jump in the back, and the driver is sitting there, and I say to him in Korean, let's go. And uh, you know, I think he was freaked out that I knew enough Korean to tell him, let's go. So he started driving. So we are alone now driving. I had no idea where the other people had gone. And the street is dark. The city is dark. So this is like driving through New York City, and there's absolutely no lights. Except in the distance, I could see what looks like Yankee Stadium or some gigantic stadium. And we pull up there, and it's obvious that there are a lot of people are in there. And the guy gestures to me, get out. And so I get out. And, you know, I walk into this stadium. And I think there are 100,000 people in there. And I come 
out one side and I, I look across and I see there's Madeleine Albright and the American delegation with Kim Jong-il. But I'm on the other side. And everybody's looking at me and they're all wearing, all these men wearing white shirts and black pants. And they look totally dispirited, totally depressed. I, I've never seen Koreans or Korean Americans or anybody of Korean extraction look so totally lifeless. I mean, they're just with their heads down. And then suddenly on the field, they have these guys come out and they start doing these sort of coordinated, um, like a dance. It's like a halftime show. But as it goes on, it gets more and more militaristic, where there are more and more people with wearing military uniforms and you know, with bayonets. And it starts getting really crazy. And then they start flashing all these you know, flip cards, like at the Alabama game. And the flip cards, which are, you know, this takes incredible precision, like a thousand people flashing up pictures of nuclear weapons and things like that. And finally, at the height of it, an airplane <laughs> flies over the stadium and like eight guys jump out wearing um, uh, uh, parachutes and parachute into the stadium. And then they start fighting, or fo fake fighting. And then they start showing on the screen a jumbotron, these guys killing other soldiers, presumably Americans. And the audience is just sitting there, completely dispirited. At which point, some guy yells something to them, threatening. And they all just go, ah! <laughs> it was really incredible. Just on command. And for you know five minutes, they're screaming at the top of their lungs, this crazy, and chanting and all this stuff. And then he gives a signal, and then they just go back, and they're completely dispirited again. Um, now, during all of this, I made my way over to the Albright team, which I felt a lot better <laughs> being with them. And they're saying to me, there are some weird stuff going on here. This place is crazy. Now, we then have a meeting. I will bring this to the present because it tells you a lot. We have a meeting with Kim Jong-il. And the word on Kim Jong-il is, oh, he's a crazy man. He wasn't. He was really smart. He knew everything. And more than that, he had no notes. He had nobody with him. Jo Myung-nok, the guy who had come from to the Washington to prepare the meeting, is not visible. It was very clear that Kim Jong-il wanted to send the message, I'm in charge. And, you know, he kept us there for five hours. We met with him for many, many hours. Now, as part of my security briefing before I went to North Korea, they showed me a satellite map of North Korea. And there are these big plots where it's entirely black. And I'd say, what's that? What are those black patches? And they said, uh, labor camps. I said, labor camps? Who's in those labor camps? Prisoners. Why are they there? You know, they did something that the government didn't like. And I said, how about this one? I mean, this is right near Pyongyang. It, it was in the equivalent of Chevy Chase to Washington, D.C. And he goes, 
uh, that's one of the larger ones, sir. And I said, how big is it? And he goes, uh, it, it's the size of the District of Columbia. I said, how many people live there? And he goes, uh, I think uh, a, million, a million and a half, two million people is our best guess. And I said, what are they doing? And he said, they're, they're starving. And they spent all their time breaking up rocks. Now, this is incredible. Here's a country of very energetic people. They're breaking up rocks. They have no electricity. They have no food. They're controlled by this egomaniac. So the next night, which was our last night in Pyongyang, and then I'll move the for forward the story to Trump. They have a farewell dinner for us. And we're all sitting in a semicircle. Albright is sitting next to um, Kim Jong-il. And it turns out that there's one person in North Korea who has access to the internet. That's Kim Jong-il. And he's fascinated by America. He's asking us all these questions about America. He, he, he loves, he wants to be respected by America. And it turns out that most of what he knows about America comes from DVDs that he got from North Korean intelligence agents who happened to be in the diplomatic mission in New York. So I said to him in Korean, what's your favorite movie? And he says, Gladiator. <laughs> You saw this with Russell Crowe. He won the Academy Award this year, and he goes, very sad. Very sad. <laughs> That's a description of you. <laughs> How clueless are you? Now, in the middle of all this, suddenly each of, our, each of us is sitting with another person who's supposed to be our counterpart and, and what they call our, um, our conversation partner. But their main job was to challenge us to these drinking contests where they have these huge flagons of scotch. And then they would chug these huge flagons of scotch and then they'd say, now, you know, I don't even drink scotch. But you know, you don't want to be rude. You know, and we're jet lagged. Here we are, we're eating this fancy meal in a country where everybody's starving. And then suddenly, you know, we're supposed to chug these big flagons of scotch. So each of us did on the American team. I don't know if Albright did. And you know, so now we're sitting there completely smashed, pondering the surreal nature of all this. And then suddenly out of the floor, right in front of us, <laughs> rises this stage with this rock band on it. And behind they project this surrealistic kind of it's like something you see in the, the Hunger Games movie, like this fake arboretum or something. And this band is playing this weird North Korean K-pop. And then these five beautiful young women come out wearing red dresses, and they're dancing around. They're very beautiful. And suddenly they put their arms around each other, and they stand in a circle, and they spin around. And suddenly they're all wearing blue dresses. Now here we're like... Here we all are, kind of half drunk. What's going on? And then they put their arms around each other and they spin around, they're all wearing silver dresses. I said, how did they do that? And then suddenly we realized that, that they have these kind of tent dresses and they're tied up here. 
and then each woman, as they're spinning around, they pull it like that, and it drops down. It's a different color. So each of us kind of gradually figures this out. And the fourth time around, they spin around, and they're certainly wearing green dresses, except one woman, half of it falls down, the other one's still stuck. And she has this fake smile on her face, and suddenly she's going, <laughs> and they went and grabbed her and took her off. And she must be 20, your age, 22 or something. And we said, what's going to happen to her? The guy said, labor camp. I have no idea where she is now or what, what happened. So that night, we flew out of uh, Pyongyang. And we go back to the completely dark airport. Plane takes off. Now, from Pyongyang to Seoul is only 38 miles. And we take off in complete darkness. And then suddenly, the, the plane, you know, we're in a plane. The plane's lights, in, internal lights are not on. And suddenly, all this light starts flooding into the cabin. And we look out the window, and below us is this incredible metropolis, Seoul. And it just dawns on me, these are the same people, the same culture, the same heritage, the same language. One group of people is this vibrant, growing economic superpower. The other is this impoverished, the only difference is the government, which is why you need to have good government. And it's heartbreaking, heartbreaking. <laughs> anyway, we land in Seoul, and we go to meet with the president of Korea, Kim Dae-jung, who was the first Korean to win the Nobel Peace Prize. He also happened to be a friend of my father. and. You know, he was jailed and beaten and everything. And we go into the meeting in the Blue House, Chongwade, and Kim Dae-jung says, um, Albright starts the meeting, and then Kim Dae-jung says, could, could I just stop for a second? I, I want to point out the fact that in this room is the son of Kwang Eun Ko. He was the only one who stood by his principles. He is a Korean hero. And suddenly I realized my father was right. All the other slime balls and cowards and gutless people who gave up their principles are not mentioned. They held jobs, they, they had high office, so what? Now at the end of this, Something very moving happened, very moving. Um, Kim Dae-jung, the president of South Korea, says to us, I believe that North and South can be reunited. And I will propose in a future meeting a federation between the South and the North, in which we each enter with our own kind of government, like the Germans did when they reunited. And he goes, but I have an even bigger idea, which is that in 2002, which was two years away, um, the World Cup final will be played in Tokyo or Seoul. But I'm going to propose it to be played in Pyongyang. 
And I'm going to propose that there be a united Korean team. And he goes, and I think that will be the beginning of a new dawn for a united Korea. And I left that meeting. It was October 2000, and I thought, it's going to happen in my lifetime. This, this will be changed. Well, you know what happened next? George W. Bush became president. You know, George W. Bush is a good son. He's a nice fellow. Terrible president. You know, I'm, I'm watching this stuff. First thing he does is he breaks off the talks with North Korea over the objection of his father, George H.W. Bush, who just passed away, who I think was quite a considerable person. Over the objection of Brent Scowcroft, George H.W. Bush's national security advisor. And the talks that Clinton had gotten started were suddenly cut off. So they didn't play the 2002 World Cup in Pyongyang. They played in Tokyo. Does anybody know who played that game? It was South Korea against the reunited Germany. If it had happened according to the plan that Kim Dae-jung had, the, the United Korean team would have played in North Korea in the same stadium that I had been in against a reunited Germany. And they would have won. I mean, the South Koreans were you know, virtually winning with half the country against Germany. And the North Koreans would have been rooting for the United Korean team. And the whole world of media would have been there. They could never have kept the society closed. George W. Bush took that opportunity away. I will never forgive him for that. It was stupid. And he had better advice. And the next time you see something good about him, remember that, too. Now, he did other things. He invaded Iraq. He had people tortured. He opened black sites. He opened Guantanamo. We could talk about those things, too. He's a very nice fellow. But don't let him reclaim his place in history because we have a worse president now. <laughs> okay. All of this leads us to the president, and here's where I'll close, and I'll say more about it in the... So, by the way, why did this not... This initiative in 2000... When we got back home, there was an election, and it was a tie between George W. Bush and Al Gore. Al Gore actually won the popular vote, and there was a big Supreme Court fight, and he lost. Or he conceded whether he lost or not. And George W. Bush became president, and things went in a negative direction after that. <coughs> so, um, Bill Clinton had wanted to go to Pyongyang at the end of his presidency, but it just was not possible because of the state of uncertainty. And then Bush broke off the talks, and they started to get back on track under Obama. And at that time, I was at the State Department again. We had a group of very, very talented people who worked on North Korea all the time. But in the middle of it all, what happens? Kim Jong-il dies, and his son, Kim Jong-un, becomes the leader. Now, he looks funny. I acknowledge that. He is ruthless. Uh, they used to call him Michael Corleone because he was the third son and of the, the, the smartest, just like in the movie The Godfather. 
Now, from his perspective, Kim Jong-un has played it just right against a total fool, Donald Trump. So here's what happens as Donald Trump starts tweeting. By the way, you know, I respect the office of the presidency. Um, but the, they are playing with the lives of my own relatives. Donald Trump begins by saying, I will show North Korea fire and fury of the kind it has never seen. And I will end North Korea. In other words, I will bomb 25 million civilians. That's a war crime. The, Amer the President of the United States doesn't threaten a war crime. Anyway, um, Kim Jong-un says, I'd like to meet. Now, Trump takes this as a huge victory for himself. And so he says, let's meet. Now, you know, I read some, some people start saying, this is a great triumph for Trump. Are you kidding me? The rule that we had, you never let the President of the United States meet some tin pot dictator unless they have made every concession before you meet, their, their reward is to meet the president and have a two-minute photo opportunity. And you prepare that meeting to the hilt. Trump didn't do that because he was so eager to have the meeting. And then once he got eager to have the meeting, why would they ever meet with anyone but Trump? Like Mike Pompeo goes over there, they won't meet with him anymore. They want to meet with Trump. And at the UN this past uh, fall, Trump is saying, where's, where's Kim Jong-il? I love him. I love him. We fell, I fell in love, he says. I fell in love with a guy who has millions of people in labor camps. And he never mentioned that. Now, by the way, just before every meeting, the North Koreans arrest people. This is a common tactic. You know, say we're in North Korea, I'm Kim Jong-un, um, Trump is coming, I have you all arrested. And then Trump arrives, and I release you all. Do you get credit for that? No. But Trump is so ecstatic, it's like, see? <laughs> it's because of me. <laughs> it's because of me you were released. The answer is also because of you, you're, they were arrested. <laughs> You know, <laughs> are you kidding me? How transparent is this? And by the way, along the way, most of the people who are specialized in North Korean affairs in the US government laughed in disgust. When, when they landed in Singapore and Trump walked out to meet Kim Jong-un, there were five people who were at the dinner I was at in 2000 on the North Korean side. They're still there. They spent the last 18 years figuring out what the Americans are going to do. They know everything. Trump didn't even bother to prepare for the meeting. Now, what did Kim Jong-un do? If you're looking at it from his perspective, first he comes in, he doesn't have any real, you know, he's, he's worried he's going to get deposed. His major challenger is on his own uncle. So he has his uncle assassinated in uh, Malaysia. So his own uncle is uh, two agents of Kim Jong-un go and assassinate him with chemical agents in the Kuala Lumpur airport. Then he thinks, I'm, oh, by the way, I should have said, as we're flying out of 
Pyongyang. I'm sitting next to our nuclear guy. And I said, do the North Koreans have nuclear missiles? And he says, no. And he goes, but they're close. He goes, this is what this is all about, to prevent them from becoming a nuclear power. And I said, how many do they want? He said, they want six. And I said, why six? One to target Tokyo, one to target Beijing, one to target Seoul, one to sell to Al-Qaeda, one for an intercontinental ballistic missile, and then one for reserve. How many nuclear missiles does North Korea have now after Kim Jong-un came in? Anybody know? 60. 60. That's the product of not engaging on this issue through diplomacy for the last 18 years, except under Clinton and under Obama. They let the number creep up. Now, why is it that they did this? Because they know they're in a poker game. If you're going to have a poker game, you want chips. How do you create chips? Build weapons. That's what he did. Now, they fired the weapons, and the, most of the weapons went down in the Sea of Japan. Why did that happen? Why did most of the tests fail? Because the North Koreans are incompetent? What do you think? When the rocket went up, the US Cyber Command launched a cyber command and took out their guidance system and went to the ocean. They never admitted it. It's clear that's what happened until at a certain point their system became so sophisticated that our cyber response wasn't capable of dealing with it. That's when we got into the danger zone. And it happened during the period of Trump's time as president. So Kim Jong-un builds weapons. He's now got 60, so he's got a lot of chips. And they test these weapons in this mountain. And the mountain breaks. I mean, literally, literally it breaks. It starts crumbling. But this is exactly at the point where Trump has fanned the whole of America into a frenzy. You know, in, in uh, January of 2000, uh, I think it's 17, they had a false alarm in Hawaii where the question was, would they actually, was Hawaii being attacked? It was a false alarm. But there's a real risk there of launching nuclear weapons on both sides because of the way in which tensions had been inflamed. Um, but Kim Jong-un is smart. He says, okay, I've gotten enough leverage out of building weapons, and I can't build and test more weapons because my mountain's broken, so now I'm going to de-escalate. So he says to Trump in Singapore, I'm going to move toward denuclearization. So Trump says, this is an incredible concession to me. And they shake their hands on it. And then Trump goes, I've scored a great victory. I'm moving this toward you. <laughs> That's what he committed to. I'm going to move it toward you. Now, by the way, right after I move it toward you, I move it back. That's a nothing. It means nothing. Attribute nothing to it. And by the way, this is critically important. How many of you saw that terrible movie with uh, James Franco and um, Seth Rogen, The Dictator? 
You saw it? What, ha what happened? You saw it, right? Yeah. What happened after they made that movie? Yeah, that's not all. How did he threaten America? <laughs> he didn't have to bomb Hollywood. What did he do with Hollywood? What did he do to, do what did he do to Sony's grid? They took it down. You know, North Koreans have expert cyber war guys. They took down North uh, Sony's system. If you're looking for a real threat, that the North Koreans can launch against the US grid. It is not an ICBM nuclear weapon. It's a cyber attack. They've already proven their capacity to do it. So if you're Trump and you're meeting with Kim Jong-un, what's the first thing you say? What do you think? Uh, don't attack our internet. Don't touch our grid. Yeah. <laughs> Release prisoners and don't touch our grid. If you touch our grid, we're taking you down. Instead, it's like, I love you, I love you. You know, I love you. You know, the, the, the North Koreans cannot believe their good fortune. They really can't believe their good fortune. Now, then it starts to become clear that there has been no achievement at all. And Trump starts getting criticized for this, so then what does he start doing? He starts tweeting less about this. You may have noticed. <laughs> Trump created the crisis by tweeting. And then when he starts to realize that his solution isn't actually getting a lot of play, he starts down uh, doing less tweeting. And he says that the situation is under control. Now they're starting to have the kind of real negotiations they should have had in the first place. And guess what? They only want to negotiate with Trump because he disempowered the people who are capable of having those negotiations. And here's the greatest thing, the greatest irony of all, and then I'll save the rest of this for tonight. If you were to make a plausible and real agreement, th there's one guy in the, Korean gov in, the, in the American government who I went to North Korea with who's still there, Song Kim of LA. Korean American of LA, went to UCLA Law School. He was one of the critical figures in the um, decommissioning of the Yongbyon nuclear power plant. He became ambassador to Seoul. He's a wonderful diplomat. He was ambassador to Manila. And when they suddenly set up this meeting in Singapore, I was so relieved that there's Sung Kim. Suddenly he's there. That's the guy they need. Because everybody on the North Korean side knows exactly what's been going on. And the Americans have basically lost most of the people they had who knew what was going on. But um, if you're now going to build a deal, what would the deal look like? Six-party talks where you agree to lift sanctions in exchange for um, you know, getting rid of enriched uranium. It sounds like the Iran nuclear deal. What's the problem? Trump broke the Iran nuclear deal, saying it's the worst deal in history, for absolutely no reason. Now, we don't have any way to control Iran. Now, if we say to the North Koreans, 
we want to have a deal with you, they'll say, why should we make a deal with you? The last deal you made, the Iran nuclear deal, you just walked away for absolutely no reason. Iran has now sued the United States at the International Court of Justice for breaking the Iran nuclear deal. And I'll tell you, in the US government, they are secretly sending specialists on the Iran nuclear deal to work on Korean stuff so that they can propose ideas, so they can say, we can make a deal, but they just don't want to say, by the way, these were pioneered in the Iran deal, because if Trump realizes it's the same thing. You know, Trump withdrew from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and then he made the, uh, uh, what that's called, the MCA, USMCA, US-Mexico-Canada Agreement, which was signed last week. The heart of the provisions is the Trans-Pacific Partnership, from which he walked away. And he's claiming it's a great victory. The thing he walked away from, he's just embraced somewhere else without acknowledging that that's what he did. So I would say that this is a long way from where we were in 2000, uh, when I thought that uh, I was about to see the reunification of this country. I don't know if I'll see it in my lifetime. There's a great irony. I'm a fan of the Boston Red Sox. When I got on the plane in 2000, I said, there are two things I'd like to see before I die. The Red Sox win the world championship and the Korean and South and North be reunited. And I thought, uh, when I got on the plane, I'll see the reunification, but I'm not going to see the Red Sox. <laughs> Red Sox have won four times. <coughs> Most recently over, well, I won't tell you who it was over, <laughs> but I think you, I think you know. Uh, I would give all four of those championships uh, for real peace in, uh, in between North and South Korea. I don't think it's going to happen under Donald Trump. He is simply too incompetent. He doesn't know what's a win and what's a loss. I'll tell you another thing. Um, in in high-level diplomacy, there's what, in almost every meeting of leaders, there's what they call a one-on-one. -on -one. Some things happen in a big group, and then they have the one-on-one -on -one meeting. And if you think your leader is smarter than the other leader, you want the one-on-one. -on -one. Why? Because, you know, if, you're, if your guy is LeBron James, you want a one-on-one, -on -one because he can beat the other guy. So with Bill Clinton, we'd say, you got to get these 10 points. And Clinton would come out of the one-on-one -on -one and say, how'd it go? He'd say, I got 13. <laughs> you know, Clinton could get two points just by walking in. He'd walk in and put his arm around the person and go, you know, uh, before we begin, how about uh, releasing some of these guys? And, you know, <laughs> he'd get two before he even sat down. And Clinton had a photographic memory. So he would come out and give these incredibly detailed accounts of what happened in the one-on-one. -on -one. Trump has no, no idea what's going on in the one-on-one. -on -one. It, it is, it is life-threatening to have these moments. Uh, you know, and you know, the best thing about what just happened with Putin in Argentina is uh, he didn't meet with him uh, for another disastrous one-on-one. -on -one. In Helsinki, it was a total disaster. And, you know, the only person who knows what happened is the interpreter, Putin. Trump probably doesn't remember half of it. And the KGB. 
Um, so uh, I will say more about all of this tonight, but I do, I do continue to hope and believe, I'm old but I'm not that old, um, that we will have a time when um, it is possible to move to a better um, state of affairs. Um, and that this country that has been shattered. Um, but when I first went to Korea in the 60s, it was just after the Korean War. It, Korea was barely alive as a country. Now it's a vibrant economic power. <laughs> and the last time I was there, uh, I walked into a big meeting at the foreign ministry and one guy stood up and goes, Professor Cole, in Korea, South Korea, he said, in Korea, we believe in global standards. Global standards. Global standards of the internet, global standards of human rights, global standards of fair trade. Global standards is what made us come back as a country. And he goes, I hope you will support us and I hope that North Korea will someday join the quest for global standards. What he's saying is there is a international rule of law, and if you have a mission in this life you spent on this, it's to make that happen. That, that's what I hope and intend to do. Anyway, I've spoken enough. So anyway, Professor Park, I, I leave it to you. <laughs> uh, I wonder if you would be open to questions. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I've been following uh, the news too much recently, but um, I last time I heard that the relations between North Korea and South Korea were kind of improving, and communications have been communication. Do you think that it's trending in a positive direction right now, or wait? Um, okay, so what happened is that Moon Jae-in, who became elected the president of South Korea, uh, wants to reopen conversations with the North. Uh, it was fortunate that that happened because when Trump became president, he started making threats to the North, whereas the South Koreans started saying, let's talk. So that created a kind of a good cop, bad cop situation where Trump is making threats, but Moon Jae-in is having real conversations. Um, now, you know, in South Korea, you know, the people in South Korea want the, they, they want the country to be reunited. But everybody knows it's going to come at a huge cost. Why? Because the people in North Korea are so poor. Just like in, in Germany, if they reintegrate them, people in the South are going to have to pay huge taxes to help rebuild the North. So it's going to come out of their pockets. And they're worried about a flood of North Koreans into South Korea. You know, if you've been to Seoul recently, it is the worst traffic I've ever seen, except maybe on 101 <laughs> North <laughs> here. Uh, um, the mistake, though, I think, is to have two parallel bilateral tracks, where Moon Jae-in talks to Kim Jong-un, and then Trump talks to Kim Jong-un. Why don't you do that? If, you, if, two, if two different parties, so, so Moon Jae-in is talking to Kim Jong-un about 
peace. Trump is talking to Kim Jong-un about denuclearization. It's not clear either of them is talking about human rights or cyber. What do you want to have happen? You want it there to be everybody in the same room talking about all the issues and have some guarantors in there too, particularly the Chinese, right? Because the Chinese, if they're going to impose sanctions on North Korea and then lift those sanctions, it's China who makes sure whether the sanctions actually work. Because if they decide to skirt or avoid the sanctions, then the sanctions are meaningless because they, they just get stuff from the Chinese. So that's why we had six party talks. That's why in Iran they had what they call P5 plus one talks. Everybody's at the table and all the issues on the table. If you have these bilateral talks, and one guy, Kim Jong-un, is at both sets of talks. He could say different things to Trump and different things to Moon Jae-in. I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did. Nobody was there to witness it. And you can't expose yourself like that. So I think that you know, it's better to be talking than threatening. I, I don't oppose. By the way, as you may have noticed, every time Pompeo goes over now, he doesn't get a meeting. And so Trump keeps saying, let's have more meetings. And then they keep canceling those meetings. The people who are canceling those meetings are Trump's own people. Because their view is, Trump's not prepared. He doesn't know what to ask for. They haven't set this up. You know, this is not, this is not simple. You, know, you have to take this seriously. And you, you, have to be, you have to be prepared. I mean, you know, these, the guys I work with, they studied for you know, months before they go into these meetings. Because to the North Koreans, America is everything. They know everything about what we're thinking. You can't just walk in there and wing it. And, you know, at a minimum, you ought to know what you don't know. <laughs> and you ought to know whether something is a success or a failure. And, you know, we're, we're in a very difficult situation now. Um, and you also ought to believe what your intelligence agencies are telling you, right? You know, look, uh, Mohammed bin Salman had Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post opinion writer, murdered. You know, it was not a spontaneous event. These guys, these agents came to this thing with a bone saw. You don't do that just for like a chance encounter. Their plan was to kill him, cut him up, and send his body out in garbage bags, which is what they did. It was a premeditated hit, like a mafia hit. Now, everybody knows that. Now even people like Lindsey Graham are saying that. And you know, Trump is so deep in deep with these guys. You know, this morning they're reporting that they had 500 extra hotel rooms in the Trump Hotel, the Saudis. I mean, this is shocking. Like, if, if you're trying to make a deal with the Trump administration, do you want to do it through the ambassador in Jeddah or Riyadh and go through official channels? Or do you go to the Trump Hotel, get a bunch of rooms to make the Trump family richer, and then ask to meet Jared Kushner in the bar? That's how it happens in Game of Thrones, right? That's not democratic. Now, why have they tolerated this? Because up until now, 
we don't have a Congress that's willing to do serious oversight. But we've got two more months of this, and then there'll be a lot of oversight, at least on the House side. So we're at the moment of change now. And um, I think hopefully these diplomatic streams merge. And at the end of the day, the, the important thing is to think that uh, Trump doesn't actually realize he's gone back to a, a lesser version of the same policy we had before, negotiating with the North with preparation in multi-party talks trying to get an Iran nuclear deal. That was exactly the policy before. All of his tweeting and all of his uh, prancing around got us back to exactly where we were before. And he doesn't acknowledge that it's not because of his victories. It's, it's because um, that's the only thing that's going to work. So, um, you know, one thing on TV, cable TV, well, depending, you know, watch Fox, everything he does is great. And he watches Fox, so he thinks everything I'm doing is great. <laughs> but if there's a message you want to get right now is how isolated we are now. Uh, America leads, and it leads in large part because people respect us, and they think we're a principled country that does things like they did for my family. And that, two things, immigrants can help solve the problem. I'm an immigrant. You know, I've held two high positions in the government. I was dean of Yale Law School. You know, not every person coming as an immigrant is a criminal or a rapist. Um, maybe we ought to acknowledge that. Second, um, diversity makes us stronger, not weaker. And third, diplomacy is better than threatening force. But diplomacy is hard work. And if we speak up for the human rights of others, they'll respect us more. You know, Trump is now not just, we, we had in the last week, Trump is isolated among former presidents of both parties. And he's isolated among world leaders. So he feels most at home of rallies of people to whom he shouts, lock them up. You know, I mean, this is an amazing situation. I, I've never seen a situation like this. You know, when he says lock her up, what does he mean? Lock up somebody for using their private email, like Ivanka? Does he mean lock Ivanka up? Except in that environment, it plays. And, you know, all this kind of stuff, tormenting your former rivals, that's, that's third world stuff. We ought to be past that. Now, if there's one silver lining, I think, is that we've turned the corner. And maybe Trump doesn't recognize it, but, you know, I think we're on the long glide path down now. And um, when it's over, I think most of you all will say, how did we let this happen? The answer is, we didn't vote. Or if we went to vote and the lines were long, we left. Um, it's our future. You know, how did, how did it happen that the Brits are leaving the European Union unless they get out of it? These people didn't vote. Um, what a mistake. You know, the Brits were a leader. They spent the last two years doing nothing but trying to address a problem, a self-inflicted wound. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. It's a great country. Wonderful people. 
they just shot themselves in the foot. So big challenges ahead. And, and finally, at this point, last one. Why do we give people this huge power and influence over us, like Mohammed bin Salman, when all they did was sit on a pile of oil? Isn't that a reason to go to clean energy? You know, if we had clean energy and electric cars. By the way, the state of California has pretty much declared independence on all these issues now. You know, I'm, I'm very impressed by everything I see in this state. It's like maybe the U.S. government's not going to do anything about us, but you know we're, we are. You know we don't want pollution here. You know, um, if this state is going to survive, you know, do you need any more proof of the power of climate? You, know, you have these wildfires and mudslides. Are they going to just get worse? You know, on Black Friday, you have a report about the impacts of climate change. For political reasons alone, if nothing else, we should be getting away from fossil fuels. And you know, if people refuse to recognize it because they won't listen to science, why are you in a university if knowledge is denigrated? Why bother to go and know what the truth is if people who know nothing and have studied nothing make decisions based on their ignorance? And the short answer has to be, these people shouldn't be making the decisions. Same lesson, every country in the world the leaders are worse than the people, every single country in the world. And so it's up to the people. You know, that's the message of my book. Donald Trump doesn't own climate. He doesn't own human rights. He doesn't own nuclearization. It's up to all of us. And the only way that he can actually make things worse is if we let him. So we can't let him. Okay? All right, thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.